So as I said, we are uh, in this series looking at these hard sayings, these very, very difficult sayings of Jesus. We're wrestling with them because of the fact that it is in these teachings, these difficult sayings of Jesus, that we encounter um, truths, truths about God, truths about uh, his kingdom, truths about what it means to follow him. And so I think it's only right that before we look at God's word together, we take a moment to allow him to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads? And pray with me. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for this evening, this opportunity to come together as a family of faith and once more sit under your word to receive your teaching. And Lord, specifically as we're wrestling with those difficult sayings, those hard words that you often deliver, Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts and minds to understand and receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one of the things that um, I often encounter uh, as a pastor is uh, interesting sayings uh, that kind of crop up in conversation with other Christians that uh, sound good at first glance, but if you stop and you really think about them, you're like, that just doesn't seem right to me. And one of the ones that I've often heard come up is this one. How many of you guys have heard this phrase, God's hands are the safest place to be? Has anybody heard that when people talk about, you know, you just want to be in God's hands. God's hands are the safest place to be. I think on the surface, that sounds really nice. I would not qualify that as a hard saying. It's actually a very comforting saying. Until you actually read the Bible. Because the moment you read the Bible, what you encounter is people who often were in God's hands— and by being in God's hands, we're led to some very, very difficult circumstances. That the people who were right in the center of what God wanted to do, the people who were following God, who were listening to his commands, who were seeking to give their whole lives to him and to his purposes and to his kingdom causes, are the ones who encounter some of the greatest hardship and the greatest difficulty. Because as you read scripture, and especially as you read the words of Jesus, you encounter certain tough sayings that fly in the face of this. And in fact, one of the difficult sayings is the one that we're going to be addressing tonight from Matthew chapter 10, and it's this line. Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is saying that when he comes and when we follow him, it's not going to lead us to necessarily very safe places. It might lead us directly into conflict. And the reason this is hard for us in our culture today is because of the fact that these are often the images that we have of Jesus. These are the images that we like to think about. And, uh, you know, some of these are like, uh, even within a church, we like these pictures of Jesus with the little children and Jesus with his lamb, Jesus wearing, you know, these white robes and looking very meek and mild. Uh, likewise, out in our culture today, they have these uh, kind of goofy images of Jesus, right? Like the buddy Jesus right there in the middle. That Jesus is a nice guy. He's a peaceful guy. You don't really see Jesus getting angry or talking about war or violence or conflict. 
And so when we hear him say things like, I came not to bring peace, but bring a sword, it doesn't mesh with our worldview. It doesn't mesh with the pictures and the images of Jesus that we often find comfortable. Jesus is saying that I came, and when I come, I'm going to bring conflict with me. And so how do we understand this difficult phrase? How do we understand this hard saying? I think the first thing that we need to understand is that while this hard saying, this hard teaching, I I came not to bring peace but a sword, is difficult for us to wrap our heads around, in Jesus' day, that actually wasn't the hard saying. You see, the, the, the context for Jesus saying this is he's about to send out his 12 disciples. That's actually what's happening in uh, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Jesus has gathered together the, the 12 guys who've been following him most closely, and he's about to send them out with a mission. He wants them to go and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And it's in the context of sending them that he says this line, that he says, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And for his disciples... And for anybody else who was probably listening to that, they would just be like, yeah, that's expected. They actually would not have had any issue with the guy that they thought of being the Messiah saying, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Because the expectation in Jesus' day is that when God sends the Messiah, when God sends his anointed one, when God sends the descendant of David to rule over his people, he is going to come as a military leader. That was actually something that uh, the people listening to Jesus would have thought, and it's something that even his disciples believed. In fact, we have reference even all the way in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has died and rises again from the dead, his disciples actually ask him, So, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what they're basically asking him is they're saying, Okay, now we know for sure that you are the Messiah because you died and rose again. We know that not even death can stop you, that you have the powers of heaven at your command. So with that power, are you now going to basically destroy Rome and reestablish the kingdom of Israel? That was their question because that's what they believed the Messiah would do. They believed that the anointed one didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Because at that time, God's people, the people of Israel, were basically living under Roman rule. And the Romans were not only the dominant military power of their day, but they were often very, very oppressive. That they uh, exacted heavy taxes from the nations and the peoples that they conquered. And so it would have been very, very natural for Jesus' disciples and his followers to be like, okay, if you're the anointed one, when are you going to deal with the bad guys? When are you going to kick out these people who are oppressing us? When are you going to take up your sword and lead us in victory? See, what seems like a hard saying to us was not a hard saying to them. Not at all. So what was the hard saying? Because Jesus does have hard sayings for them. Do you want to know what would have been actually harder for them to hear? What would have been harder for them to hear is the type of conflict that Jesus says he's about to bring. Because Jesus goes on, and he says this. He says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. 
You see, that is the one that would have caused Jesus' disciples to pause and to say, ouch, what does that mean? And I think for us, modern day people, that's really not a tough one for us to understand because you'd be like, wow, a man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, that sounds like Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Yeah, like every holiday season. But think about Jesus' context for a moment. He is saying this in a society where family is supreme. In a society where family values are, are way higher than anything that we can even wrap our heads around as modern Americans. You see, your family was everything to you. Your father was the lord of the house. Okay? Not just the guy who kind of sat at the head of the table. He was in charge of everything. You don't defy your father. You respect your mother. And the reason you did this is because you depended on your family, not just your nuclear family, but your extended family, this extended family unit for your survival. You needed each other in this kind of a society to ensure that you had enough hands to harvest the fields. You had each other's back so that when one of you was sick, the rest of the family would come around to provide not only for the one who's sick, but for everybody else who was depending on their labor. So they didn't have a hard time with Jesus saying, I came not to bring peace but a sword, but what they would have had a hard time is to say, but that conflict is going to cut right through your family. That would have actually been the harder reality for them to stomach. That would have been the more difficult saying for them to fathom because they would have been like, wait a second, wait a second. The Messiah, God's chosen one, is going to divide households? Why would he do that? How are we to understand this? You see, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, if you're going to follow me, you need to know that rejection is in your future. That those who want to be my disciples, those who are going to follow me in the kingdom work that I am going to do, need to recognize that it is going to lead them to be rejected by those that they think are closest to them even the members of their own household. This is why Jesus says, brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. And the truth is, is that this statement by Jesus, this hard saying, does still play out today. I spent um, several years doing uh, international student ministry uh, when I worked for InterVarsity. And one of the things that I would often hear, either from our students in our, in our ministry or as I talked with students from other chapters on other college campuses, is how students who were coming from a non-Christian background, the moment they came to faith, faced conflict in their families. There was actually one young man who came from a Muslim country uh, to study at our university. And it was during that time that he made friends with Christians, that they just loved him and cared for him. They started to support him. They were praying for him. And he started to ask them about their faith. And as they shared about Jesus, he realized that Jesus was the thing that was missing in his life. And he decided that he wanted to be baptized and become a Christian. But when we sent out our prayer letters 
to let our prayer supporters and our donors know we couldn't include his picture, we couldn't include his name, we couldn't include his country of origin, and the reason why is he said, if my family ever found out, I would be executed before the moment I returned home. You see, there are people who following Jesus for whom these words are very real thing. That by saying yes to Jesus, they immediately face rejection and conflict, and yes, even the threat of the sword for following him. But even for those of us who live here in America, we know that this is true. That when you decide to follow Jesus, it can often lead you into direct conflict with those who are closest to you. I certainly know that this was true for me. In fact, in his book, Bringing the Gospel Home, Randy Newman says this. He says, There are many potential problems with witnessing to strangers and acquaintances, but witnessing to family members, the ones who have known us the longest, who've seen us at our worst, and are the least likely to fall for our facades, seems infinitely more daunting. Because what he highlights and what he's kind of saying in this story is that oftentimes, especially if you're coming from a a non-Christian background and you suddenly decide to become a follower of Jesus, some of the most difficult conversations are those conversations about faith with the rest of your family and friends who don't yet believe. And I know that this is true because this was also a part of my story. That growing up, we didn't go to church. That was not a thing that we did. Uh, We believed that there was God, um, but we didn't really think about him too much. Uh, Christmas was more about Santa and the Easter Bunny than it was about Jesus and a manger and a cross and a tomb. Um, And so when I finally started getting curious about spiritual things as a teenager and ultimately came to faith when I was 18, suddenly things like relationships that I loved and that were very, very close became kind of weird and awkward. That the moment I became a Christian, there were many, many friends who didn't get me. And that even my family and my parents were a little bit weirded out that now I would spend time in the evening in my room reading my Bible or wanting to go to a Bible study on weeknights or that I wanted to talk with them about my faith and ask if we could pray. They just kind of gave me the sideways look and they were just like, is our son okay? I mean, he's not going to go join like a cult or something, is he? You know, And I think that there was probably, uh, and I know there was a couple of my friends who were probably hoping that it was just a phase, you know, that maybe I would get over it. Uh, You know, newsflash, it wasn't a phase. Um, I'm still here, and I'm a pastor, so that makes it really awkward now. Um, but But it was odd. My relationships did change. Because when you decide to follow Jesus, it does cause conflict with people who don't understand the decision that you've just made with people who don't understand why your faith matters to you. And those can become very, very difficult conversations to navigate. They still are to this day uh, for us and for, with our extended family. But I think in order to understand why this is, 
And why Jesus says this conflict arises is we have to dig a little bit deeper to understand what's really going on here. Because what Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, this isn't just like that your relationships are going to get awkward or that these people uh, in your family, your closest friends, aren't going to understand the decision you've made or that it might lead you to some conflict. What he's saying is he's saying, look, when you decide to follow me, it causes conflict because following me highlights that there is a very real battle. What Jesus is saying is he's saying when I show up, when I come into people's lives, my very presence reveals that there's a much deeper battle going on than simply a difference of opinion. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6.12. He says, look, we need to recognize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, what Paul is saying is he's saying the reason conflict emerges whenever Jesus shows up is because Jesus, by his very presence, points to and shines a light on the fact that there is a battle raging in the hearts of every human being. That there's a war taking place in the spiritual realms between good and evil. And that Jesus, as the divine king, when he shows up, he highlights and brings those things to the fore. That that's really what's going on. And you don't have to be a Christian to understand this. I mean, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, writes this. He says, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. See, when the disciples were just like, hey, when are you going to kick out the Romans? Those are the bad guys. We're the good guys. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The conflict is going to be waged in your very homes. It's because there is a dividing line, but it doesn't run between nations. It doesn't run between people groups. It's a dividing line that runs right through the heart of every single individual. And when I show up, I shine a light on a conflict that is raging. A conflict that's raging for the hearts and minds of the people who are closest to you. There's a war being raged in human hearts. And the conflict isn't simply between you and your family that now thinks you're weird. The conflict is really a spiritual battle between God and the forces of darkness that would keep people from believing in him that would keep people from following him. I mean, that's one of the things that I find so interesting. If you, if you have your Bibles and you look at Matthew chapter 10, over and over and over again, Jesus alludes to this battle. Verse 8, when he tells them to send, when he tells them what their message is and what they're supposed to do, he talks about driving out demons. A little bit later on, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, so be on your guard. Further on, he talks about how people have been accusing him of being in league with the devil and how he's saying, no, I'm not, but you're highlighting that there is a real devil and that there's actually a battle. He actually says that in verse 25. A little bit further on, we get to the verse that we were just talking about, peace, not, uh, uh, not peace, but a sword, so on and so forth. Over and over and over again, throughout chapter 10, Jesus says the real issue that happens when I show up is that there's a battle between good and evil. 
evil. It's a battle that's being raged within each and every person, which is why when I come up as the subject of conversation, it's going to be divisive. It's going to be hard. It will become challenging. And the question is, what will we do in those moments? How will we respond? How are we called to respond when our very family members not only think that we're weird, but actually start to talk poorly about us? How will we respond as Christians when we start sharing our faith with someone and they tell us, I don't need that Jesus thing, and in fact, I'd prefer that you never mention it again? How will we respond if this is the real battle that's being waged? The answer that Jesus gives is a really fascinating one. He doesn't say, well, then just shut them out of your life. He doesn't say, well, respond back with insults of your own. Rather, what he says is, he says, this is all I'm asking you to do. I just want you to go. Just go and proclaim this message. The kingdom of God has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. See, Jesus says you will face opposition. That's a reality of being a follower of Jesus. It's going to come up. Yes, sharing your faith will be hard. But what he's saying is he's saying, but I'm asking you to do it anyways because of the fact that everybody needs to hear the message. I'm asking you to go and to share your faith because of the fact that it's a message that actually brings freedom and healing and new life. This is not a battle uh, waged with swords. This is not a battle uh, waged with harsh words. This is not to be a battle that is waged by cutting people off and cutting people out. No, what Jesus says is he says, your response when people try to scorn you, when people try to spit on you, when people drag you before kings and counselors is simply to pray, to trust that the Holy Spirit will provide you with the words that you are to speak in that moment and to bear witness to the good news that the kingdom has drawn near. That is our, to be our posture. That is our calling. Because what Jesus then says is he says, because anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. See, don't be surprised if you're called to go to share your faith with the people around you and it's a little difficult. It's a little uncomfortable. But Jesus says, keep this in mind that when you're doing so, you're representing me. That I go with you. That I'm the one who's going to provide for you in those moments with the right words at the right time. That I'm the one who's going with you because my desire is that those defenses would come down, that those walls that are built around people's hearts would fall, that they would ultimately know that I'm not here to destroy, but to give life, that they can enter into a new relationship with me, a relationship which ultimately gives purpose and meaning and depth to all of life, that I can actually bring ultimate peace 
This is part of what Jesus is talking about when he says at the very, very end of this passage, he says, whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. See, what Jesus is saying is like, this kind of peace, there's going to be initial conflict because of the fact that there is a conflict raging. It's a conflict that rages in every human heart, but the moment someone responds to the message that I am sending you with, they actually find true life and true peace. So don't be discouraged. Don't let the difficulty and the hardship and the challenge get in the way of you going and being an ambassador of good news. Because the gift that you have to offer is life itself. It's a gift that I actually came to give to each and every one of you. It's like, yes, you will face rejection. That will be a reality of your experience. I mean, he actually says, uh, if it is enough, this is verse 25, it's enough for students uh, to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called a demon, how much more the members of his household? He's saying, look, just as they've treated me poorly, they're going to treat you poorly. But your response is not to hurl those things back, but to rather to continue to be a good messenger. So wherever you go, bring the good news of the kingdom in word and in deed. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received this life. Freely give it. Because that's the best gift that you can give. So what does that practically look like for us as we're called to go? I think the first thing that it practically looks like is pray. That as you go, one of, the Jesus, one of the things that Jesus says is he says, hey, when, when these difficult conversations come up, when you have these hard discussions with your family members, with your friends, with those closest to you who are starting to wonder why you would go on Wednesday night to a church service, he says, pray. Pray for them that the Holy Spirit would give you words to speak. Pray that he would open doors in people's hearts and minds to receive the good news. Pray that the conflict that's waging in their hearts, not just between you and that person, but ultimately between them and God, would be brought to an end. That there would be a deeper kind of peace. A deeper kind of reconciliation that comes with knowing that God is a God of love, a God of forgiveness, a God of new life and new beginnings. Pray. Pray that God would make a way. The second thing that you can do is simply continue to be a friend (laughs) to another person. Oftentimes people will come to me and they'll say, you know, hey, um, I have a family member or I have a child or I have someone that's close to me and they just seem so hostile to the gospel. So what can I say to them to get them to listen? It's usually the question. What's this? It's, and the underlying question is, what's the silver bullet that I can use? Jesus is saying, not about bullets. Go and love them well. The first thing that they need to know is that they are loved. And the only way they're going to believe that God in heaven loves them is if they see that same kind of holy and godly love pouring out through you. You want to know what the first thing you say is? I love you. How can I pray for you? How can I walk alongside you? What's going on in your life? How might I serve So yes, pray. Yes, serve. And then, and then 
then and only then, as those walls start to come down and as people start to become curious, share your faith. Because here's another thing that I think is important to remember. Doors that might be slammed at one point can always be opened again. There have been many, many times in my life talking with people who initially said, I'm not interested in Jesus. I'm not interested in the church. I don't like organized religion. I don't believe in any of this stuff. Many, many years later come back to me and say, hey, I've been thinking a lot about some of the conversations that we've had. And I would like to know, why is it that you take Jesus so seriously? I can never script when those happen. I don't know, but the point is this. Just because a door might initially be slammed doesn't mean that God can't do an amazing work that opens it. And all we have to do is be ready and be present to walk through those doors when they're open. One final story about this that I hopefully illustrates the point. When Jenny and I moved to St. Louis uh, for me to start seminary, uh, one of the first relationships that we made was with a, a couple that we met at a playground. Um, I had taken my kids to a local playground and they started running around with this little boy. And uh, I got to know his dad and the dad and I kind of hit it off and we started talking and I quickly found out that the two of them were uh, 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 professors of modern dance at Wash U. Um, they were great people, but here was the thing. They really didn't trust Christians. They didn't like the church. They had a lot of problems with organized religion. And if I ever tried to bring Jesus up, it was usually kind of like, okay, that's nice. But it was pretty clear that a door was closed. So the rest of the time we were there, about three years, we just hung out with them. And that's all we would do. We would pray for them. We'd have dinner. Our kids would play together. Uh, they invited us over to their place for Thanksgiving one year when we weren't going home. We weren't able to actually make it back for that holiday. And, uh, and we just loved them. We loved them well. We prayed for them often. And the more we started to do that, just praying with them, uh, just praying for them, just continuing to spend time together, some of those defenses started to come down. That more and more, you know, they would start to ask questions just like, so okay, so your faith is a big deal. You're training to be a pastor. Why? Why do you care about that? You know, or I'm really wrestling with this issue. I see it in the news. What do Christians have to say about that particular issue? And how is the church responding? They would start to ask questions. But here was the thing that I just absolutely loved. Uh, three years after we initially met, a uh, little, right around three years, um, we got to celebrate my ordination here in this church. And we sent them an invitation. Said, hey guys, we know it's a drive up from St. Louis, but you were there from the very beginning of our time in seminary to the very, very end. We'd love for you to just come and join us for the ordination. And so they did. They were actually here. They celebrated uh, the ordination with us. It was wonderful. And we said, hey, seeing as how you're up here, uh, you guys want to come over to our house for, for lunch the next day? And they said yes. So they came over to our house, and as we were sitting there in the kitchen and getting food ready, um, David came up to me and he said, hey, there's one more ordination gift that I wanted to give you. I was kind of holding on to it. And I said, okay, uh, what's the gift? And he said, uh, the gift is this. We've started going back to church as a family. And I looked at him and I said, that's the best gift anybody has ever given me for my ordination. He's just like, yeah, but see, here's the thing. The reason why is because of the fact that you and Jenny and your kids were in our life. 
You never wrote us off. You handled our questions with patience. You showed us that being a Christian is actually a reasonable thing and not just a crazy leap off of a cliff intellectually. Um, but furthermore, he said, but then God started to send other Christians into our lives who did the same thing. They just loved us. They listened to us. They patiently answered our questions, and we just feel like this is right. This is good. And we just want more of what Jesus is offering So here's my encouragement. Following Jesus will initially lead to conflict. But remember this, it's not about you. It's not about the surface level arguments and rejections. It's because there's a deeper war being raged. And what Jesus invites us to do is to fight that battle differently. With words of grace, with acts of compassion, with being relationally present in a way that points people to the God of love who sends us with a message that says, behold, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near to you. So don't be discouraged. Don't fear. Don't worry or fret. Simply go. Be faithful. Pick up your cross and follow him. Forever loses their life for his sake will find it. And for whoever receives though that, uh, those that he has sent receives him as well. I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, the reality is, is that we live in a world where there is a conflict raging, where there are countless people who don't know where they stand with you and for whom God seems like something that is hostile, who wrestle with the realities of church and with following you. But Lord, one of the things that we thank you for is that the answer that you give in the midst of that conflict is that you actually do bring life and healing. And so, Lord, may we not become discouraged May we not fear. May we not be turned off or run and hide uh, in moments when conflict arises. But Lord, may we actually trust you. May we go with the message of the kingdom that you've sent us with. And Lord, we pray, we pray that as we continue to pray, as we continue to be present, and as we continue to point people to you and your love, Lord, that walls would come down. That light would win over darkness that freedom would be given and that people would, experiencing, would experience healing, restoration, redemption, and ultimately a relationship with the God who alone can provide life in a dark and conflicted world. We thank you that you've sent us with that message. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we say, amen.